Hello and welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And we conclude our journey into the world of William Friedkin, where it started with another collaboration with Tracy Letts, the playwright, mm-hmm. this time Killer Joe, uh, from a few years after Bug, the film we started with. Uh, this is from 2011, and it's a key film in what became known as The Reconnaissance, the reinvention of Matthew McConaughey uh, as a kind mm. of dramatic actor, someone who was taking darker roles. He spent 10 years as a rom-com guy. There was this whole persona of he had his shirt off on the beach sort of thing. And then this happened, and uh, Mud happened, and Magic Mike happened, and True Detective happened in 2014. And there's this period of three years of really different roles from McConaughey. But I think it kind of... This was the first one, I think. This is the one that shocked people. He's this really... Well, he's a cop, but it's a freaking thing we've seen before. The amoral cop. This time he's a cop who uh, performs contract killings. Did we... Did we see this together when it came out? I don't think we did, but we've definitely seen it before, both of us. Yeah. I remember being really shocked in a, in a pleasant way, right? Mm. Like, I'd gotten in the habit of just going to the pictures, which means that in a way, well, you choose amongst what's available, but actually I, 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 I wasn't aware who directed it or yeah. Yeah, any of that. I mean, I, you know, I just went because it looked good and it had Matthew McConaughey in it. And actually, in the first five minutes of the film, it's like you're thinking, who did this? Right? Like, <laughs> you know, it was like so, um, so instantly noir and beautiful and shocking and lurid. And so actually, I think, you know, because I've been criticizing Friedkin a lot. And I think it's good to remember that, you know, like his skill level is still beyond almost anybody else. I mean... You know, there was that moment where I, I was, it was literally a, who is this person who directed this, right? Like, it's a, mm. I kind of was amazing, really. Uh, so I thought it was good to say that now because, you know, I will later be making some of the same criticisms I've been making <laughs> about Friedkin. I actually think, you know, that you begin to see patterns and limitations as well as these incredible kind of strengths that he's got. When I first saw it, I remember being kind of blown away in similar ways. And again, it's a kind of—it's what you say. Who who made this? You know, where did this come mm. from? Um, although I, I don't—I don't know if I knew it was Freakin at the time, but um, certainly the focus was on McConaughey. This was, I think, yes. I think popularly as well. This was um, the the film where McConaughey plays a creepy guy, a bad guy, so on and so forth. I also I remember being really taken by the look of it. it it had such a crisp clean look and i always remembered the blood on gina gershon's face at the end when she's been yes. punched in the face it's so vibrantly red it's so bright yes. that really stuck with me and her eyes are so dark she it looks like a mask yeah the, uh. the, the whole look of her but especially the blood really stuck in my mind and that came back today and i was like yeah god that, wow that's the same you know like <laughs> i remember it so vividly um i think they're saying we've not given freaking enough credit for throughout this season, which this film made me think of, is his, is his skill with casting and working with actors. Um, I think this is a brilliantly cast film. I don't, I can't think of a film we've seen where people have been miscast and there's an element here of getting the trust of your actors. You know, I mean, what he gets Gina Gershon to do towards the end with the, with the chicken leg, 
But that's Gina Gershon. That's almost like typecasting. <laughs> okay, I, I didn't find that, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, it's Gina Gershon of Bound and Showgirls and, you know, kind of, I love her. I think she's great, but she's always been known for doing those daring things. You know, I, I actually don't think it's particularly daring. A freaking, and actually, I would disagree with you because, I mean, the thing about uh, freaking and actors is, so I kind of agree with you, but actually, I think there's something always a little off. And I wondered if it, if it didn't have to do with ego, because one of the things that you begin to notice about Friedkin as we you know, went through his career is how rarely he casts stars. Mm. I, the people who we now think of as stars weren't quite when he used them, right? So mm. people like Gene Hackman or uh, Ellen Burstyn, like, you know, they were, I mean, they were names, but they weren't yet box office stars. And actually, I, I often think that, you know, his films miss out by the absence of them. And when he does cast them, the films get enriched. I mean, I can't help but think of like, you know, people like Francisco Raval in Sorcerer, yeah, who's much more alive and magnetic and so on than the real star, who's Roy Scheider, mm. right? Yeah, so, um, and actually, I think this film greatly benefits from having Matthew McConaughey, yeah. Mm. Uh, and I'm not quite happy with the performance of the brother. Yeah. Emil Hirsch. Yeah. So like Roy Scheider, he's not bad. He's good. Yeah. But, you know, that's a great role. Somebody else could have, you know, made it really alive and vibrant and yeah, all the things that it's kind of meant to be. And it almost is, but not quite, actually. He's, you know? he's the weakest member of the main cast. And I think there's a reason he's not become the, the big star that he was kind of supposed to be, I think, for a while. He was also the, the main guy in Speed Racer. I think this was around the same... I think Speed Racer was maybe 2008. He was supposed to be one of the kind of next big things. And I think this film demonstrates why he wasn't. He doesn't have the magnetism. Yes. So I think your thing about casting... But he's the only... But I think he's the only bum note in this. I mean, this is a brilliantly cast film. I think Juno Temple brings something really magical to it. You know, it's, I, it's interesting. She like she, like I was saying, you know, the film has the the amoral cop sort of thing of freaking, and Juno Temple has something of the um, of the innocence of Linda Blair at the beginning of The Exorcist in this yes. as well. But she has this kind of she has this darker side, and she ha she, she you know, th there are moments in the film where um, she says something off kilter, and it surprises even Killer Joe. And Killer Joe is so in control of all his situations. And when he can be perturbed by her, you know, that's a really kind of special moment. And she yeah. she has this little laugh. She has these looks. You, you wonder what's going on inside her head. She's wonderful. Gina Gershon is amazing. I very much liked uh, the actor who played uh, Ansel, the husband. Thomas Hayden Church. Yeah, whom I don't, whom, you know, maybe I should know, but actually I don't. He's familiar, a familiar face that I can't remember from where. Uh, and I think he, he does an incredible job of playing dumb, yeah, which is not easy to do, you know. Yeah, without becoming a sort of stereotype or a caricature, he feels a real person. I agree. I love him in it. Yeah. So, and actually, I wrote a little blurb, which I'll send you to include in our podcast, of Killer Joe when it first came out. And I wasn't impressed with Matthew McConaughey, uh, you know, as much uh, as other people. 
as you said, this film came out right in the middle of, of the reconnaissance. And my um, ungenerous view was that the roles were better than he was. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so that, you know, he was he was getting praise for choosing the roles rather, you know, than his performance in them. Uh, and actually seeing the film again, I think I was very ungenerous because I thought he was fantastic this time around. Yeah, he had a real stillness and, you know, and he seemed coiled and he reminded me very much of Robert Mitchum in Night of the Hunter. I thought he was much better than I initially thought seeing the performance again. Yeah, he carries an awful lot of threat with him. He brings the film like I mean, we mentioned before, actually, we were talking about Freakin' Stars in one of the previous podcasts. Maybe you were talking about Roy Scheider in Sorcerer because Roy Scheider, like, Roy Scheider had just done Jaws at the time, so yeah. he was as big as he would be, really. And yeah. still, he's not a kind of killer star. But McConaughey was in this. You know, he'd been huge for 10 years, and it was such a surprise yeah. and a kind of shock to people that he was doing something like this. And that's one of the reasons the film was yeah. a draw. Was the film. I think the film was successful. No, not No, that the successful. film was a terrible flop. Yeah, it was. Uh, a budget of 10 million, and it made half that at the box office. Hmm. Not successful, but critically very, very well received. Yes, I mean, you know, now when we get these box office statistics, I think everybody should be a little bit wary. You know, so if you're looking at classic Hollywood and they give you the figures, you can easily tell whether the film was a success or not by the theatrical box office figure. Mm. But right now, I mean, this could, for example, be a film that is wildly successful, and we don't know, I mean... You know, the film could be uh, a relative failure at the theatrical box office, but had really taken off, you know, on DVD or, mm. you know... Uh, Streaming. Uh, uh, or on other platforms, right? I mean, and often uh, the theatrical release is really just used as a publicity launch for its subs the film's subsequent afterlife on all the other platforms. I would be surprised if this is a film that has not made money on a $10 million Oh, yeah. Because, it, eventually yeah. they all kind of do, and, and it's certainly... It's one of those that grew in sort of stature. People, I think, discovered more and more after. Um, so yeah, yes. that that only tells half the story. You're right. Um, something about this film that I think speaks to Freakin more widely, which again I only really thought about when I was watching this, is how rarely it feels like Freakin is letting other people make decisions for him. <laughs> you know, yes. Um, like his films kind of come out the way that he wants them to. I think. I think so. Um, you know, this was this this was an NC seventeen, and you can imagine the pressure to cut it uh, because an NC seventeen yeah. is kind of a death sentence at the box office, um, mm -hmm. and it would have destroyed the film to 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 make that accommodation, to make any kind of accommodation towards that. Like it it it's it's a violent, grim, very shocking film towards the end. We can we can maybe talk about the chicken scene in a bit, um, but like it's of a piece, <laughs> you know. I mean, I think there are things worth discussing about uh, Friedkin's work in general, because I think certain things get highlighted. I mean, he's attracted to the lurid, yeah, to mm -hmm. the seedy, uh, uh, um, not always with the greatest depth, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think there's something kind of false about this film or, or cheap, yeah, mm -hmm. like um, I think it lacks depth. Yeah, and I think that's true of many freaking films. It's actually one of those films that is taking itself very seriously, but actually I'm not sure that the, you know, uh, um, the material or the way it's being filmed warrant it. 
uh, he's definitely attracted to the taboo. I mean, this is a film in which a 12-year-old girl is basically bought yeah, mm. for sex and, you know, gotten pregnant and so on. It's really out there material, yeah? So mm. clearly, you know, you put this next to The Exorcist with that, you know, uh, a stabbing with uh, the crucifix, and you get a, a, a pop, lurid, sensationalist sensibility, yeah? It's not there to discover any great truths or anything. It's mm. there to, like, make you jump out of your seat. That, to me, is kind of... Uh, a weakness when you see it kind of so recurrently. Um, he's also got this thing about endings, about, you know, never satisfying the audience or denying the audience the pleasure in, <laughs> yeah, uh, in an ending. Uh, this is better handled than most, yeah, uh, but it's still there, yeah. So, you know, I think spoilers, but at the end of the film you kind of don't know what's going to happen, but you kind of do. Yeah, like, she cocks the gun, mm -hmm. right? But you don't see anything happening. Cuts the right? black. Um, the thing about the ending is, it has that similar feeling to Jade, I think, where I was, take, I was saying about Jade, you know, the, the very kind of final few shots of that film, the final scene, kind of turns things on their head. There's a huge revelation at the end of Jade, and then a twist in terms of how the main character is kind of being treated and so on. And it comes really from out of nowhere and leaves you with a kind of pit in your stomach to some degree. And it's just, it, it feels unjustified. And like a, it's there just to get a shock reaction. This has a very similar thing going on right at the very end with the thing about she, she says she's pregnant, we're having a baby, and he's elated we're having a baby. And then does she shoot him, cuts to black. And it's just like, oh, what? You know, <laughs> you're left exactly. with a... And then you walk out dazed into the world and you end up going, as we've said with so many freakings, what does it mean? What was the point? What was I supposed to, you know, was I supposed to get anything deeper than the shock? Because you've been saying all along, he's so interested in the underbelly of society and the dark side of the way humans behave. And it's absolutely true. It's, it's, it's impossible to ignore that that's where so many of the films are set and how many of the characters kind of behave. But I'm always left asking, okay, but is it more than just an interest? Or or what is the nature of the interest? Is it just that this is titillating? It's exciting to see. He likes to excite his audiences. He's excited by it himself. But, you know, is there is there an attempt to interrogate why humans behave like this? Why we have this side to us? That kind of thing. I never feel it. I never feel it in these films. Yes. No, I don't either. And if and maybe you could be generous and say it's about getting us to enjoy what we're seeing and then ask it of ourselves, why did I enjoy this so much? But I think that would be being too generous, frankly. Yes. I mean, the thing about the films is they, I think they look beautiful, you know, and they move beautifully. And, you know, uh, I'm so interested in the world that he creates, but almost in a, in a mediatized way. Yeah, you're always aware that it's a construction. You're always questioning, you know, what, what the relationship between this construction and the world that we live in. You know, it always seems fantastical and imagined and kind of removed, right? Mm. And actually, it creates a world and a set of people that is very easy to look down on. And you, you feel 
that the filmmaker is kind of looking down on them, actually. Mm. Yeah. You know, I mean, these are trailer trash and this is the way trailer trash behaves. And it's kind of like you're, wa you know, you're watching Friedkin's idea of trailer trash through a lens. Mm. Right. But actually what people caught up in, you know, this poverty, uh, uh, you know, the struggles that they might through the desperation that they might be driven to. I never felt that it actually connects with a real, you know, world. What you were saying earlier about it feeling kind of phony. You know, I agree with I think there is there is something about the way in which the world is constructed here and the characters are constructed doesn't feel honestly observed. No. And the gothicness of it is not rooted in anything. Though they attempt to root it for you. So the idea of killing your own mother should carry more emotional weight than the film mm. gives it, even if she's a terrible mother <laughs> and she's a mother, you know, who once tried to, you know, kill her kid or whatever. Yeah. Like, you know, a, a better film would have asked, well, what desperation drove her to try and kill her kid? I mean, maybe she had no money to feed it. I mean, there could be, you know, mm. yeah, it, there could be reasons. But actually, the film deals with these things on such a surface level. Well, I suppose that was kind of, in a sense, the the, the reason because she's clearly estranged the mother. I mean, you, the, the only time you see her is when she's dead in the boot of the car. Um, so, and, well, I'm not saying that's a good reason to kill her, but what I'm saying is like, I, I, I it obviously reflects very badly on the family that wants to do this for this fifty thousand dollars they think they're going to get, and like you're 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 put right into the middle of that right at the start. The kid needs some money. This idea of getting Killer Joe to kill the mum is active right at the beginning. And um, I kind of liked, like, these, these aren't likeable people. Even Thomas Hayden Church, the dad, who is, in some respects, too dim to be, um, you know, really... An agent. Yeah, yeah, really an agent. Um, you know, he's still not that likeable because he's willing to do this. He feels like a bit of a passenger, but he's willing to do this. So I kind of didn't, I didn't mind that it wasn't sort of fully fleshed out, I suppose. Like, it was, it was, about, the, it was about the people who are willing to do this and the fact that, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter what your mum did, really. Um, you shouldn't be willing to offer for the life insurance, and the fact that you are is enough enough for me to go on with the characters right at the start. You know, I didn't feel like I needed more about the mum. Well, I did to take the film at a different level because when the film begins, you know, the part of the reason for all of this is that the oldest son had been living with her. And she kicked him out. Hmm. So actually, you know, she was enough of a mother to have, you know, a grown up son living with her and looking after him. And, hmm. you know, so, yeah. So, so, and in any case, it doesn't matter. The thing is that, you know, if it's all going to be fantastical and stylized and dreamlike or something, yeah, then, you know, I think, okay, fine, right? Um, but then don't bring other things into it, you know, and if you're going to be bringing other things into it, then flush them out properly. Right. I mm. mean, I think, you know, uh, this is a really highly stylized film, mm. yeah, um, which I love. You know, I love the look of it. I, you know, uh, I kind of I love the milieu. But for example, even the milieu, I was thinking, you know, this is contemporary America. You know, what is it? Oklahoma and Texas. These are like sub proles partly making their living out of drug dealing and so on. I, I really felt the lack of of meth. <laughs> yeah, uh, methamphetamine, because, 
you know, that's the cheap drug of choice. That's the plague on America. That's what you, you would have expected surrounded these people. Yeah. It's not mentioned at all. It's all, you know, they, they deal in dope. Yeah, it, uh, there are dissonances, right? You feel also that it's kind of people not in touch with the material, right? Yeah. Um, well, the the play was from 1993. It was from before Bug, actually, which was 96. And you th- and maybe that's like something uh, that they never they never thought to update, you know? Right. <laughs> maybe. I mean, but I think you're right. Maybe. It does actually. Yeah. I hadn't thought about it, but it feels like an absence. I mean, I suppose that, that it just kind of goes into what I felt was, as I said, phony about the setup, really. Yeah. Um, I mean, what I liked, I, I suppose I kind of put that to one side in, in my head and said, well, I mean, the plot moves so quickly and there are these machinations about the $50,000 and who's going to get it and are we going to split it and who gets paid what and so on and so forth. And then it turns out that the $50,000, the beneficiary isn't the daughter, it's someone else and that becomes a whole thing. And so mm. everything kind of happens so quickly and moves at such a lick that that's what the appeal is for me here. It's being caught up in the the sort of wake, you know, and being strung along. And so the so the fact that it wasn't, it, it feels like it wants to it wants to look like it's giving you this rich picture of the underclass in Texas, hmm. and it isn't really. It it feels fake. But I sort of put that to one side in favour of just going along with the characters in the story, do you know what I mean? Like, I let it be superficial for the sake of enjoying it. <laughs> I know what you mean. I mean, the thing about the film is I was enthralled by it again, mm. right? So, you know, I was I was blown over by it upon viewing it the first time. I haven't revisited it until now, you know, and, you know, it's still... The things that thrilled me about it, and I emphasize thrill because I just think, mm. you know some of the things are absolutely great, right? Um, and you're watching it and you think, my God, oh, it's unbelievable, wow, right? And then you finish watching it and you think about it and you think, oh, this is kind of cheap. Mm. Yeah, that there, there, there actually is something about the execution, the way that it looks, the way that it moves, the way that it's acted, that is vastly superior to the material, yeah, or... You know, if it's in the material, then, you know, it hasn't been brought out by the filmmakers, right? You know, the thing begins to fall apart in your head as soon as you finish watching it. But, you know, the the moment of watching it, you think, you know, it's amazing. Mm. But after you watch it, you you do ask all the same questions that you ask of Friedkin, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of icky. <laughs> it's, there's a tinge of misogyny. A tinge. You know, or more, yeah, more than a tinge. <laughs> I mean, it's really brutal against women. You know, the girl is 12 years old. Like I thought you'd really pick up on that. I mean, I remember you being so offended by the treatment of the... I can't remember the actress, the female character in The Hateful Eight, the Tarantino film. Yeah. She gets beaten up left, right and centre. You know, I thought, I thought you'd have similar similar objection to the Gina Gershon. Well, I kind of did, but I didn't. And the reason why I didn't is because... You know, she is meant to be the brains of the outfit. She's the only one who knows what she's doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she, you know, she she set it all up, right? She's the, she's the bad one in the thing. So actually, you know, for her to get slapped around doesn't seem so um, outrageous. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's in a way keeping with the character. And then uh, Freakin is very good about keeping you in that moment of, 
tension. As you, you know, is this going to happen? Oh my God, it's happening. It's happening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you're caught up in the emotion of that and you're not thinking. Yeah. But, ap- but again, you know, kind of after you finish watching the film, you think, Ugh. yeah, like, <laughs> you know, it is, it is misogynist and it is brutal. And the girl's 12 years old and, you know, Ugh. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird the twelve years old thing because Gina Temple clearly isn't, but the character says so. Um, I mean, how, yeah. how how old is Gina Temple? She's uh, she's thirty one now, so she would have been twenty two. Um, yeah. So she's ten years older than the character she playing. If if when the character says she's twelve, she's telling the truth. I mean, there's something you feel like. I, I felt that like that's a line of dialogue that. Um, the character seemed to be in a headspace there that I couldn't quite trust what she was saying. She's in that kind of dreamy headspace at the time. So I didn't know how literally I was supposed to take that line. Um, I think you're meant to take it pretty literally. Yeah. Well, if you are, it's disgusting. Yeah. But I but I, 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 I don't know. I just, I let it go, you know. Um, because physically she's clearly not. And so... Well, she's clearly not, but she's pictured as clearly being. I, you know, you're told about you know, uh, um, this crush that she had on this fat guy who was very nice on her, but, uh, you know, um, you're, she's pictured with all her dolls and, to- you know, mm. soft toys yeah. in her bed, right? Like, you know, she is treated like a little girl, yeah? Even Gina Gershon mothers her, you know, um, and so on. So, you know, and you're told she's 12, and nobody says, no, she's not. So, of course, as soon as she takes her clothes off, you see she's a grown woman. So, you know, that plays, right? But I think she's meant to be 12, right? She's certainly, as you say, sort of constructed as innocent and virginal and all of those things, and and threatened kind of by sex as well. Like, Well, not by sex exactly, but when Killer Joe has her to himself for the first time in the apartment, they've constructed this dinner and then they've left her to be with him and they haven't told her you know she's obviously very nervous but then I don't think that's necessarily a fear of sex I mean who wouldn't be nervous (laughs) no matter how old you are even yes and I I actually but I do think you're meant to take it as a fear of sex as well and actually the way that Killer Joe handles it is very interesting right and it's conscious of her being a young girl who would be afraid of sex Mm -hmm. yeah it's like he turns around and, you know, and so on. And uh, the way that it begins with her behind him before, you know, him asking her to move in front of him, right? Like you could see that he's yeah. Um, yeah. grooming her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the fried chicken stuff because I, I really put, and I'm glad you brought up the. Uh, masturbating with the crucifix from the exorcist because it brought that to mind for me as well because Mm. um i wasn't shocked by the crucifix stuff in the exorcist i was and i when we talked about the exorcist i kind of gave it some defense um and i was really shocked by the fried chicken stuff here i forgot about it for one thing and I think there's a comic aspect to it in that, you know, he, he's not having... He's, he puts the fried chicken on his crotch like a fake penis and gets her to suck it. And, mm. I mean, it's a really vile sort of thing to be doing and degrading. Um, and the comic aspect, for me at least, is that he uh, seems to be getting a genuine physical pleasure from it. 
you know, breathing hard and so on. And of course, he can't possibly be. So, like, it's there's, yeah. you know, he, it's in his head. You know, I don't think he's acting either. Like to me, it comes across as in his head. He is loving this and feeling it. You know, mm. um, but it is yeah, yeah. it is disgusting and shocking yeah. and degrading what he makes it do. And and so I kind of thought, I, I thought, what's the difference between this and the crucifix stuff, right? Because the justification that I gave or tried to give for the crucifix stuff is that this demon that's inside Reagan in The Exorcist is trying to get them to lose their faith. And he's trying to do the worst things possible. Mm. And it's justified in that it does that it does that for the audience as well. It shocks you that much. And here, the fried chicken stuff feels more gratuitous than that. I, I, was, I felt like I was able to justify it less in terms of the story. You know, he doesn't need to be doing this to degrade her. It's fun for him. Killer Joe is so already in charge of the situation. He doesn't need to be doing this. He's already beat her in the face. He's already smacked her in the face, hasn't he? Mm. I think. Um, well, but to me... You know, the point is beyond that. I mean, you know, what upset me is, you know, it's a, it's a 13 or 14 year old girl mm. shoving a crucifix up her vagina. I mean, you know, that Im alone, just the age of the young girl doing it mm. and presenting that to an audience, I think it's obscene, really. Mm -hmm. You know, I think uh, it's cheap and obscene. I mean, here... You know, uh, the scene is about power and control. He's exercising power and control. He's out to humiliate her. She is being humiliated. Mm -hmm. You know, on the other hand, it is a 50-year-old actress giving a performance, which I think is different also than presenting a 13-year-old girl, right? Like, I, I, yeah. yeah, I mean, to me, that's a fundamental difference. You know, if it had been Gina Gershon shoving a crucifix <laughs> up her vagina in The Exorcist, I wouldn't have been bothered, you know. I think it would have. I thought it might have been tasteless or whatever, yeah. but you know, yeah. I mean, you can't get away from the fact that it's Linda Blair at thirteen or something doing that. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's, and, and being presented to do that, it's yeah, it's kind of. So, so the reason I bring it up is not so we can kind of get into the weeds of the argument again because we've already had the discussion. But I suppose I just want to, because this seems to present such a clear point of comparison with that mm. uh, sequence from The Exorcist. I suppose what I'm asking then is, because um, you talk about it being Linda Blair as opposed to Reagan, so is it the fact that he yes. got a 13-year-old girl to do this in real life, like a 13-year-old actress, you know, and that yes. she was asked to do this? It's not the fact that it's the character that's doing it, it's the it's that he got an actress to do it. Well, to me, the, the fundamental thing, before you even discuss story or motivation or whether it was the devil is you're seeing a 13-year-old girl shove a crucifix up her vagina. And that's what is being presented to you. I mean, I think I just think that is fundamentally wrong. Yeah. I mean, people now are talking about, don't post pictures of your children <laughs> on Facebook playing soccer because some pedophile might be whack, you know, yeah. whacking off on them. Well, I mean, here is Linda Blair at 13 being presented to the whole world with her legs open. I mean, you know... Mm. Uh, I just think it's 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 a mistake and it's wrong. Yeah. And I know that it wasn't, you know, that Linda Blair wasn't really doing yeah, it, yeah, yeah. but it's presented as, mm. right? Uh so so I mean I I just think that's off the charts in terms of tastelessness yeah. and so on, really. You yeah. know, you can you can twist yourself around rationalizing it the way that you want. You know, but would you put your kid like on screen doing that at thirteen? Well, well, no, quite. I mean, when would. I was saying earlier, because I, I, there's something I want to slightly kind of adjust on what I was saying earlier. When I said right at the start, we haven't given freaking enough credit for 
his casting and his working with actors. I think there's some truth to that, but um, in terms of his working with actors, I mean, he has such a reputation for the way he treats actors, particularly on The Exorcist. And, you know, Ellen mm. Burstyn had, uh, had uh, kind of had back problems ever since because of a stunt where she was pulled onto the ground by a wire. And I think she was she complained about it and was told, OK, I'll tell them to go easier on you. And then she says, I don't think Friedkin asked the guy to go easier on me. You know, so like in terms of working with actors, that's not what I mean. No one deserves that kind of treatment. And it's odd watching The Exorcist and thinking of all the things that you would uh, sort of want to take care of, you know, the duty of care towards the actors you'd have these days, you know, mm. um, that is clearly sort of absent there. Mm. Um, so what I mean when I say, you know, works well with actors is he gets good performances out of them. Um, not necessarily the way he does, but you know he he gets really good performances. That uh, but that's kind of a side issue anyway. But we're talking about Killer Joe, and um, I guess I, I, it just struck me that, like I say, I I found myself shocked and not offended, but kind of outraged um, by by the fried chicken stuff here in a way that I wasn't with anything that I saw in The Exorcist. That's interesting because I didn't quite feel that way. I mean, I thought it was powerful. Mm. You know, and I thought it was about power relations and I thought it was kind of interesting because obviously the husband is just there being as humiliated as the wife, though being unconscious of it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, you know, kind of him exercising power over the wife is also exercising power over him. He is helpless, but actually he's so pissed off at her that he doesn't even care and he's not aware of the dynamics. Mm. Right. Um, so I, I kind of, um, I thought it was kind of powerful and, you know, for me, Gina Gershon is such a powerful presence anyway, that I didn't quite feel as outraged as you did. I actually thought it was like a great noir moment or something, <laughs> yeah. you know? Well, I mean, I suppose maybe we saw it differently. I think maybe we saw it differently because yeah. you're talking about the outrage that you feel in The Exist being about primarily being about the actress presenting that as something yeah. that, that it, you, about it you, being a young girl yes yes um whereas i think my you know the outrage that i felt in killer joe was about character you know it uh. it was about the character of killer joe doing that that's yeah. actually what i but, found but, outrageous yeah but actually for me that would be in keeping with with the character of killer joe oh yeah and completely. everything you've you know, so yeah, like so, it's to, it's so, really fitting. Yeah. It's really yeah. fitting for the film for the character, but um, but for me, like that's what that's where the shot came from. You know, well, you see, for me, for me, like the opening scenes always set up a tone and a milieu and you know a kind of a, a feeling for what the rest of the film is going to be. And your introduction to Gina Gershon is her vagina. She opens the door to her trailer. <laughs> And she's not wearing, uh, uh, she's wearing a t-shirt with nothing under. Yeah. And actually what you see is her vagina, right? So that already sets a trajectory <laughs> for the film. And actually this chicken scene is in keeping with, you know, <laughs> well, yeah. what you've seen from the beginning. So, yeah. um, so I suppose I minded it less, though again, you know, when you think through the various elements in the film in your head after watching the film, it is, you know, it, it leaves something unpleasant and half-baked and you know, kind of, you know, it's like these, these cheap shock effects, really. Well, like you, well, you, I, kind of. you kind of think of it in terms of, or at least I kind of thought of it in terms of, if you gender flip some of these characters, how does it play differently? 
Um, so if, uh-huh. for instance, the husband is the conniving one who gets beaten and maybe even forced to suck a chicken leg like Gina Gershon is, and Gina yeah. Gershon is the dumb one who's kind of caught up in the wake. Like, I mean, that's, yes. that, that would not be shocking. That would be shocking, but it wouldn't be shocking in the same way. There's a very gendered aspect to the yes. violence. Yes, um, yes. And it doesn't feel accidental that, you know, it's a woman who is the conniving one with the, the brains who ends up getting yes. so beaten. But like, likewise with a young girl, you know, mm. if it had been a young boy who'd been, you know, taken as a retainer and used for sex, yeah, you know, and you were told he was 12 years old, it would be completely unacceptable. <laughs> I mean, there's something about it being done to a girl that actually makes it somehow more socially acceptable when it shouldn't be. Yeah. Well, there's, there's also an element of that that's played as um, a kind of fantasy relationship. You know, she she believes they're in love, and and he believes yeah. they're in love as well, Killer Joe. Like he, you know, I mean, it's 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 what it, it's begun as, um, this quote unquote retainer and this grooming sort of situation and basically rape, um, yeah. And it's become I love her, I want to marry her, I'm going to take her with me, and and then they're going to have a baby together. It's like, in the most twisted way possible, they the film has built a beautiful relationship. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, I suppose we have to question, you know, what is the film's intent? What does it want to do with this? Mm. What is it presenting these things to us for? Is it just meant to be a laugh? Is it meant to be a shock? Is it just meant, you know, to be invited into the, like this lurid fantasy world? You know, because maybe we're, we're, we're reading things that were not, you know, there are questions to ask of a different work and not this one. <laughs> um yeah, I'm, so I suppose that's always like a possibility. Um, well, I don't think I don't think we're reading it in terms of intent. I think we're reading it in terms of effect. You know, like I, I, I well, but you but you need to read both of them together because then you measure the effect also in relation to the intent. I mean, hmm. you know, you 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 can't say oh it's not a realist gritty drama if you know the intent is not to make a realist gritty drama. No, no, of course. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so so I think the two things are kind of related. Um, but I'm interested in, well, there are several things that come to me and they're just speculation, but, um, one of them is I begin to see a pattern of Friedkin being drawn to second rate material. Yeah. (laughs) Like, you know, if you see like the boys in the band, you know, it's not the greatest 20th century play. Let me tell you, you know, uh, uh, if you look at the Exorcist, well, it's not the best novel, you know, it's not even, you know, uh, yeah. And I'm actually wondering about these Tracy Lett things, which, you know, on one level are obviously, you know, a level higher uh, uh, than the Exorcist. But actually, when you, you know, when you think through Killer Joe, you do think it's kind of very pulpy and mm. slightly cheap and so on. And then when he does get like really fantastic material, you know, like Wages of Fear, he turns it into second rate poppy. Yeah. <laughs> it's my view. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the thing that's interesting about Tracy Letts is he's won the Pulitzer for drama. Um, not for either of these, but for August Osage County, which I've not seen. Yes. I mean, again, it was a play and the film was made of it, directed by John Wells, I think. I saw the film. I mean, what did you make of the film? I, I was disappointed in the film. Yeah. Yeah, it was one of those all-star cast things, yes. 
So, so you know, it's an interesting thing because there is, uh, you know, like I said, so I've said before, I love Tracer Letts as an actor. These two screenplays, this and Bug, feel disappointing and and, and um, malnourishing, or malnourishing. Maybe malnourishing is is too harsh, but not nourishing. You know, and yes. kind of not substantial. But you've got people like me and freaking loves him and says he's a great American playwright. And you're going, what, what am I missing in this material Yes, that other people are seeing? Well, we haven't seen the plays. So there, there might be something in the plays uh, that's not there in the screenplays. Yeah. You know, um, there might be something about the theatrical uh, uh, experience that's different from the cinematic. I mean, this is clearly almost a one set play, right? It's got, what, five characters you know, and I think most of it takes place in the trailer. I mean, yeah, yeah, uh, it might be a fantastic theatrical experience and you don't know what's been put in and what's been put out. Um, I mean, all I can say is that, you know, for me, the narrative, the look, the tone of the film is incredibly seductive. Mm. Yeah, you're kind of, you feel like your senses uh, are awake when watching this film, right? And then after you watch it, your mind takes over and you begin to find fault is my, (laughs) so if I can describe my experience of watching and thinking about this, right? So, um, and uh, yeah. Seductive is a great word because that's actually, that's what I thought about McConaughey as well. And I think there seems to be a strategy of deploying the McConaughey that you know as the rom-com guy and you know he was like i think it was people magazine sexiest man in the world in 2005 man alive sexiest man alive yeah, yeah. so um, so like he's he's got he's the sex symbol and he's deployed in a seductive way here the way he it's his acting style yeah. you know he he kind of slithers about sets and he's obviously an awful person but you like him you're drawn to him they're saying magnetic that we were saying and the film displays him. I mean, you know, he's got this incredible nude scene. Yeah, I yeah. mean, this is a, a film where, you know, he takes not only his shirt off, but everything, really. Right? So, <laughs> yes. you know, kind of, that's not to be discounted. Yeah. I, you know, what you expect of McConaughey in a, a, a rom-com is deployed here, yeah, to a noir effect. Yeah. Well, and, and the fried chicken thing is deeply yes. sexual. Yeah. Not in not in a very nice way, but you know he is sexually active in that scene, getting turned on. You know, yes, um, um, getting quite steamy. And the scene with you know, and a scene with a twelve-year-old, which turns the whole rom-com star persona on its head. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, in a different context, if the film had been um, worse than it is, um, and maybe even still now, actually. This could have been the film that he chose knowingly that would prevent him from ma- ever making a romantic comedy again. Because, you know, whenever you think of him sexually, you'd always think of, like, you know, the chicken and the 12-year-old, you know? Yeah. 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 So, so actually, it's a very risky role for McConaughey, which I think, you know, give him credit, really. Has he made a rom-com since? I'm not sure that he has. Well, I mean, he's made a, he's made some very interesting films since. Like I say, this was... 2011, and I think this kind of kicked off the the um, mm-hmm. his his revival. There was Mud, Magic Mike, and the Paperboy in 2012. 2013. I was love the... Mud. Yeah, I know you love. Mud. I fell asleep in Mud. Yeah, I love. I saw it four or five times. Wow. 
I was meant to write on it and never got around to it. I, I love the paper boy. I haven't seen that. I know. I think I would like it, though. It's really sleazy and yeah, funny. Exactly. <laughs> Nicole Kidman's in it, right? I always thought it looks interesting. Yeah, yeah, she's in it. Um, Dallas Buyers Club after that and The Wolf of Wall Street in 2013. Interstellar in 2014, which is not a deep, dark film, but neither is it a rom-com. Um, the Sea of Trees, I don't know. Um, I don't know that. I've never heard of it. Sea of Trees, it's a drama mystery by Gus Van Sant. The Free State of Jones. Oh. Free State of Jones I quite enjoyed, despite the fact I think if I watched it again now, I'd probably find all sorts of problems. Maybe I had problems with it at the time, but I thought it was interesting. It's about... Uh, do you, have you seen it? No. It's about a, a place in the mid-1800s, I think, in America, that kind of declares itself free and that slaves can be free there. Uh-huh. Um, and there's a great scene where they're voting and all these people line up to have their vote led by Matthew McConaughey, who's the you know kind of main guy. Um, mm. And they all have their votes. And then you see the tally come up and it's like they've had 12 votes. You know, they've just not been counted. Great scene. There's a couple of voice things he did in kids' films. Gold, I don't know. A crime drama. The Dark Tower we saw. He's uh, yes. the, the villain in that. White Boy Rick. A crime drama again. Serenity, fantasy I, mystery. I think I did see Serenity. The um, Beach Bum, a stoner comedy. Oh, he's back to that again. Oh, Harmony Corrine. Between two films, the movie he just plays himself. And the Gentleman, which is the last thing we saw him in, which where he played the, the American gangster in London. Which I liked. I I I remember liking the Gentleman. Yeah, we certainly liked him in it. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no. It it seems like his rom com days are behind him. So far. <laughs> 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 to see if he goes uh, back to it. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, to me, and I'm just kind of speaking about my own feelings and thoughts, you know, and so on about the film. I kind of put this together with To Live and Die in L.A. and Jade. Okay. Yeah. In that, um, you know, I mean, there are many things in all of them that I have problems with, uh, more in Jade, actually, than any of the others. And yet, it's a film that I can see myself watching it again, mm. and more than once, yeah? Yes. So I think kind of the criticisms that I make of it, which I stand by, I do think it's kind of cheap and lurid in the worst sense, and, you know, that... Um, the 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 filmmakers are way beyond the material that is being dramatized for us. I I stand by all of that, and yet you know there is something about the lighting and the camera moving, the decor, and the way that it all moves together, you know, and the actors and so on that really draws you into this material, you know, and kind of and keeps you interested and kind of alive to what it's offering until the end of the film. And then the paradox is that then once you begin to piece it together, you think, oh, this is a bit, you know, cheap and... Yeah. yeah. Afterwards, you kind of feel the appeal has been skin deep. Um, yeah. And, that's, exactly. and that doesn't feel that satisfying. But I think you're right. I think, I think we both agreed that we're not that satisfied with the screenplay. Yes. But the performances and the filmmaking do elevate it. The performances certainly do. We haven't really talked about the filmmaking so much, I suppose. Um, well, it's, I mean, that's almost like, a, you know, something I want to go back to the film for. Because, you know, I do think the cinematography 
uh, and I looked it up. I was so interested. It's Caleb de Chanel, right? Very famous cinematographer who was also directed. Uh, he's a great cinematographer, and my God, you can see you can see it in this. Yeah, it's kind of, you know, the the lighting and is beautiful. The way that like focus is used to kind of bring certain things in and kind of keep certain things almost, you know, uh, uh, out of focus is fantastic. Um, so yeah. So, as this is the last of the the Friedkin season, our Friedkin season. Um, yes. <laughs> how do how do we how do we bring this all together? What are the lessons that we've learned about William Friedkin from these seven or eight films? Well, for me, kind of part of my interest actually began through Boys in the Band and Cruising and having discussions with queer academics, both pro and con. Some people finding Boys in the Band very offensive and dark and so on. Um, you know, so what I've learned is that that darkness permeates everything else, right? Uh, what I've also learned is that the cheapness of the material, which is actually, I want to qualify that because it's almost, it's almost like material that like this wins awards or, you know, is a hit off Broadway, but actually it isn't of the very greatest yeah, kind. It isn't of the deepest or the richest, the richest. It's kind of, you know, uh, uh, yeah, second-rate material, really. Uh, successful, but second-rate. That you begin to see kind of a pattern of. You know, the discussions that I had on cruising, which was, you know, the the intent to shock, the, yeah. So actually, you begin to think, oh, well, you know, he's not really homophobic. I mean, this is, he is misanthropic. <laughs> he <laughs> never gives the audience, like, you know, a happy ending or pleasure or, or this, you know, this interest in, you know, S&M kind of, uh, uh, you know, there's a fisting scene in uh, uh, a cruising. It really is kind of what he's interested in. You see it manifest in different ways, like, you know, throughout his career. I mean, you know, a, a vagina in a 12-year-old girl, uh, Gina Gershon with the drumstick here. You, you begin to see kind of a pattern of, mm. yeah, of things. Um, he's great with a camera. You know, he's great in motion. Uh, he can certainly kind of, you know, set up a scene, yeah, line up a scene, like, you know, beautifully. Uh, the films are glossy, yeah, uh, uh, very pleasurable, always rich production values, you know, that are a great pleasure on its own. And actually, one I miss more and more. Yeah, the thing about digital, I think, has made people careless. Yes, with the, you know, the pleasures of, like, depth and texture and you know, construction of images and what they can do. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, so I love all of that. Um, but it's also kind of confirmed my view that he, um, I haven't loved any of his films. Mm. Yeah. So I've been interested in all of them and they've drawn me, but you know, kind of, uh, the, you know, the material doesn't speak to me on a personal level. Uh, and, the, and yet there's other material that doesn't speak to me on a certain level, but I feel I learn from or, you know, that maybe I'm not up to the level of the filmmaker. But none of that with this. I, I actually think it satisfied me that, um, you know, he's like a very skillful technician, but doesn't rank with the Coppolas and so on. Mm. 
you don't feel he's underrated or underappreciated in the annals of film history. No, I don't. I th- I think he's rated just right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's there's something about his work that, um, although I think I said in a previous podcast. It doesn't always feel like he wants you to have a good time. I, I think he always wants he always wants to please his audience, even if that pleasure is sort of you know, the pleasure that you feel from being shocked or the pleasure that you feel from having a bad time or experiencing something taboo. The audience is always in his head. Yes, but not in a good way. So I think the audience is always on his head, but he's got a disdain for the audience. You know, he thinks he can manipulate them easily. <laughs> He's constantly directing for effects. Yeah. Yeah. He often goes for the cheapest and, yeah, uh, 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 most um, extreme effect. And he never leaves the audience happy. I think there's a disdain, you know, yeah. to end films the way that he does. So, actually, I think that's a really great way of putting it. He's always conscious of the audience, but I don't think he's got much respect for it. It brings me back to something that I always think about, I think I've mentioned a number of times on the podcast, uh, that my brother told me about J.J. Abrams. J.J. Abrams is always saying on set, apparently, is this delightful? And the effect that happens is, in the moment, everything that you see in his films is lovely and delightful and you enjoy it, and then afterwards, empty. And it's like, it's as though you can imagine Friedkin on set going, is this shocking (laughs) and spectacular and crazy? Like, it has to be in the moment. And then afterwards, empty. Yes. There is something unsatisfying about the work, and particularly so when seen collectively, you know. Uh, there are definitely patterns that, that you know, uh, come out, and not to his advantage. You know, and I think it's kind of interesting to see a film both, you know, in its own terms, right, and then in relation to, you know, what else was out, which we've done when, you know, when we talked about To Live and Die in L.A., but then also to see it kind of collectively, yeah, the, the, the works of this director, uh, you know, are there patternings. Um, and I think, you know, the, the French Connection and The Exorcist were his biggest hits. Mm. Uh, and, you know, kind of, we enjoyed both of them but also found, you know, very considerable faults, I think, in both. Um, Though admittedly, you see, the other thing to add to this is that these films are now 40, 50 years old, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, so, and we're watching them and discussing them, right? So they have something, right, Uh, that means they're continuing to be watched and discussed, right? So I happen to think that it's not enough, right? So again, yeah, it, it's in keeping with these patterns that I feel about him that, you know, he is a, a great technical director, but I don't think he's done any film that is absolutely great. Yeah, yet it's skillful enough or um, it made such an impact or it's of sociological interest or historical interest enough that it continues to be seen. Yeah, and often with the same problems discussed over and over again as in a broken record, and I would include The Exorcist in that. Mm. Lovely. Well, thank you very much for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies, and we are on. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. 
uh, on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter. And the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Do you have any last thing you want to say? Uh, last thing I want to say is I think if you remember Thomas Hayden Church, it's from Sideways or Spider-Man 3 where he played Sandman. Those would be the biggest roles. Ah, yes, yes, yes. Now now I do remember him, yes. Yeah, there you go. That's the last thing uh. I want to say. <laughs>